Ahoy there team, welcome to the Uncomfortable It Is Okay podcast, I'm your host Chris Desmond and this is a show where we explore the science, the stories and the strategies of getting out of your comfort zone so you can find where the magic happens for you. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Sam Shea and since the age of six, stemming from his parents' extremely stressful divorce and high stress school environment, Sam struggled with a whole host of chronic health issues, uh, including severe insomnia, digestion problems, severe fatigue, uh, inability to cope with stress, sugar cravings, salt cravings, low moods, um, and even requiring coffee each morning from the age of six. Uh, Sam coped with this stress by developing a strong addiction to video games. Whenever he wasn't studying, Sam would just sit down and play for hours and hours and hours. And Sam was supposed to be the third generation medical doctor in his family, uh, including his grandfather and both his parents. Both his father and grandfather have also published in the medical field as well, so there's a a whole raft of pressure coming on Sam. However, Sam left the pursuit of Western medicine when he realised Western medicine failed to address the root causes of disease at times. For the past 17 years, Sam has devoted his life to health and science, learning how to heal himself through natural medicine. He now applies these same principles to his patients in the clinic uh, and to his coaching clients online. Um, And Sam's Sam's educated through multiple means, uh, including three bachelor's degrees, uh, a doctorate in chiropractic, a postdoctoral diploma uh, from the American Chiropractic Neurology Board, um, a fellowship in the American College of Functional Neurology, uh, and a postgraduate diploma in traditional Chinese acupuncture. And Sam now helps people who struggle with ongoing fatigue, pain, gut issues, hormone issues, and other health concerns uh, through his comprehensive approach to lifestyle changes and using functional testing to create a custom diet and nutrition program for individuals to help them reclaim their health. Now this is a this is a pretty long conversation today. We go for about an hour and a half um, and we barely scratch the surface um, of, of the things that Sam's interested in and the, the fields of knowledge that, uh, that he can, he can teach us. Now I was a little bit tired during this interview and this conversation. So there are a couple of times where I should have asked Sam for a little bit more clarity around a a couple of topics, um, where I, I didn't take that opportunity. So I'm sorry for that guys, but, um, because Sam has such a raft of knowledge, I think we need to get him back on the podcast at some point as well. So pop your questions for Sam through to me and I'll make sure to ask them next time round. And again, apologies for not going deep enough on, on some of the topics, but I'm sure you'll find that we definitely go deep on some of the others. So what we talk about today is, uh, among other things, retraining your beliefs, transforming stress into freedom, video game addiction, uh, how to nap, Sam's 10 pillars of health, uh, plus a case study on me actually as well and hopefully that's interesting for you guys too Um, and of course getting out of your comfort zone. Now if you guys like what you hear make sure that you click subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you get these episodes coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. 
Um, if you've been listening for a little while, make sure to leave a review on your favorite podcast app. It helps us uh, get a little bit more vi- visibility, helps it drive us up the rankings, and also makes it a little bit easier to, to get some amazing guests on and keep getting amazing guests on. Or one of the easiest ways to do it is to share the episode out with your mates. But that's enough of a preamble from me today, guys. I hope you enjoy getting uncomfortable with Sam and I today. Welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. Thank you for inviting me around today. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure, mate. It's a pleasure. It's uh, and thank you for the tea. It's uh, it's pretty delicious. What uh, what it's type just, are we uh, drinking? It's apropos of a podcast. It's called mm. Throat Coat. So oh, yeah, nice. <laughs> I thought I'd be preemptive and make sure it was thematic of the discussion, so it was therapeutic. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm finding it very therapeutic so far. Anyway, we'll see how things go over the next day. We it's, it's my go-to t- when I when I give. Um, lectures from speaking. I actually load up on about two or three bags in a uh, in a thermos before I go okay. on, and as I'm on, to just constantly keep my throat more um, mm, nice uh, functional. We might have to uh, approach them afterwards to see if we can get some sponsorship for uh... right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's that's good. I'll definitely be looking that up. Um, <laughs> Sam, a little bit of a uh, segue to start there, mm-hmm. which is good. There'll probably be many more of them, but. I usually like to start things off by having a chat with people about kind of who, who you are. So where you're from, where you grew up. You mean you don't want to start with more tea memes? Uh, <laughs> we could do. I think I was, I was thinking of dropping some in throughout the conversation. Sure thing. All right. Uh, so uh, my my background, you said? Yeah. yeah. Well, where, where, where are you from? Where did you grow up? So uh, originally, originally I'm from the States. I grew up in uh, outside Boston, Massachusetts, which is in for... Uh, people in this corner of the world, uh, New Zealand, it's northeast of, northeast corner of Massachusetts. If you were thinking of, um, Australia is roughly the size of the United States, it'd be somewhere around where Brisbane would be, uh, geographically. Uh, then I went out to university in Northern California, and then I went to chiropractic school in Dallas, Texas. So arguably, I've lived in three separate countries within the United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a fair geographical spread there. What yeah. um, what drew you to university in California, which is kind of it's almost the opposite side side diagonally of the country. Uh, pretty much the most opposite side you can get. Uh, that's that's actually well, you talk about you know uncomfortable is okay. When I grew up in a super academic family, I mean, I'm talking the house I grew up in was effectively a library that had some beds and a kitchen in it. And both my parents are medical doctors. And uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was a lawyer. And my grandfather on my father's side was also a medical doctor. And in fact, um, Grandpa Harry, my uh, my father's father, he was the founding director of the Fells Cancer Research Center at Temple University in 1937. So Dr. Harry Shea, you know, 
Grandpa Harry. Uh, he he was the person to make the first mouse models for breast cancer and two forms of leukemia, and he published over three hundred papers on nutrition and cancer and gastroenterology and a couple other things. And and I'd like to say that my journey into natural medicine or medicine in general, in my case, as natural medicine, uh, started on my grandfather's knee, but I, I can't because my grandfather actually died tragically 17 years before I was born on the operating table due to medical malpractice and misdiagnosis and misadventure. And uh, this this uh, happened right at the beginning of my father's medical career. And he, um, you know, carried that with him as a, as a warn, as, as a warning of, you know, make sure that you, he says, my, my father told me, he says, he, he's make sure that what you're doing is safe and effective for whatever procedure that you're doing. Now, the caveat, if you're in an emergency care room, you know, you know, there's wiggle room because the circumstances may dictate that you've got to do something risky to try to save someone's life. And um, you do the best you can with safety and effectiveness. But outside the emergency room, which is where I'm at, I'm way as far away from the emergency room as possible. Um, in natural medicine, I, uh, that's not my sandbox I play in. Um, focus on what's safe and effective, uh, because the the risk otherwise is can be very tragic. You either are wasting someone's time or you can harm them. And my father um, went on to uh, do medicine. He became a psychiatrist and got a, a PhD. Uh, oh God, was it neurology? I can't. I think PhD in psychiatry. He did some extra work in neurology, but he focused on post traumatic stress disorder. And wrote two books on PTSD. And, um, you know, he worked with people who were in a chronic state of uncomfortableness. And for them, it was even getting to that state of, is it okay? Isn't even okay to be this uncomfortable? Um, and he, you know, my mother was also a medical doctor, also a psychiatrist. And I know that some of you are thinking, wait, both of his parents are psychiatrists. Isn't that like a setup for a bad joke? And I, my response is yes, many jokes. And I've heard them all and probably can make up a few of my own. So I, um, I thought I was going to be a third generation medical doctor. Just at six years, literally at six years old, I knew I was going to be a doctor. I, I remember uh, our, our house was, just down the street from Heartbreak Hill, where the Boston Marathon would run by. So at six years old, I'm standing there with my mother, and we're we're watching these marathoners jog by, and I um I, <laughs> I'm very unapologetic when I say this. I have a blog post why marathon runners look like cancer patients on my blog, uh, and and at six years old, very clearly, I remember turning to my mother, medical doctor, said, "Mommy, why do they look sick?" She's like, "No, no." They're healthy. They're doing cardio. Like, mommy, they look sick. No, no. They're healthy. It's good for their heart. Mommy, they look sick. You know, and just remember that so clearly that these gaunt looking marathoners would come by, just jog by. And I just, I had this clinical instinct, uh, and the inertia of just the family 
I don't know, pedigree, I guess. But my, um, my, we'll, we'll get there and how I ended up in California in a second. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, so what, what happened was that I grew up in a suburb where everyone was expected to go to an Ivy League school. That was just, that was expected. That, that's, that's what I was expected to do. And so the pressure, the academic pressure was immense. Um, and, and that was the major metric of success in the house was academics and, uh, going through school was very hard. I was uh, amongst the smallest kids in my class. I was, uh, bullied quite a lot. Uh, my parents divorced when I was six. Uh, my, my parents divorced when I was six and that's when I developed a sugar, um, a sugar addiction. I had coffee just to stay awake. Because I had severe insomnia from age six, I had all three, you know, couldn't get to sleep, couldn't stay asleep, and woke up exhausted. I uh, had um, terrible digestive problems and, and a whole smattering of just health issues that weren't easily categorized into an allopathic diagnosis. It was, oh, he's stressed from the divorce. You know, let's send him to a psychiatrist. Surprise. Uh, and uh, my and I was put on a very high carb, low fat diet because in the mid eighties and both my parents being doctors who thought they were doing the right thing, they had my cholesterol checked when I was seven, seven and determined it was too high and then put me on a high carb, low fat diet of, yeah, the look of incredulity on your face is, is, is I'm just wondering, <laughs> did they even have norms for cholesterol for seven-year-olds at that time uh figured out something i don't know they figured out a norm for me but it was it was just i look i look back on it i'm like my god how and and i'm yeah and and dairy and grains is like the worst thing possibly for me genetically i mean I, i do genetic tests for optimal diet and um and in genetic when i finally did my genetic test this was you know under two years ago i realize, oh, wow, I am so on the paleo spectrum uh, for genetic adaptability to diet. Uh, you know, anyway. So I, I had all these health problems plus a lot of physical and verbal bullying in school. And and just, just a rhetorical question for the audience. Like, what's the difference between being hit in the face uh, and and – and one's called bullying and one's called assault. What What is the difference? I'm actually going to ask you that. Mm. What do you think is the difference between bullying and assault if you're hit in the face? Why do, why do some people call one bullying and one call it assault? That's a good question, actually. It's not something that I've ever really thought about. Um, potentially, I mean, the, the only thing that I can think of is the consequence to the person doing the hitting is that assault tends to bring with it, you would hope, harsher consequences for that person doing the hitting. I'll simplify it. If it the, the difference between bullying and assault is if you're under 18 and still in school. Okay. That's yeah. the difference. <laughs> Structurally, there's no other difference. You're hitting the face, you're hitting the face. Mm. So, uh, the, so going, so, Going into school, being very stressed out, going into back home and being stressed out with the stress of the divorce and the repercussions and fallout from that, uh, 
made me just dive headfirst into academics. And then fast forwarding, so I applied to 12 schools. Vast majority of them were Ivy Leagues and, and Ivy League equivalents, except this one school out in California that was my, quote, safety school. And so I was rejected by 10 of the 12, waitlisted by one and accepted by my safety school. And I was so distraught. I was truly, truly distraught because my whole life in school was if I could just get to the Ivy League college, Mm. everything will be okay. I'll endure the abuse. I'll endure the humiliation. I'll endure uh, the, the physical problems, the insomnia, the the, the digestive problems, just I'll endure everything as long as there's that golden ticket out of here into the Ivy League that I was promised if I got the good grades and did what I was told, etc., which I did, and I was rejected by these schools. Now, why I think it has to do with half of everyone else in my class was applying to the same thing, and there's just too many people from that zip code you know, with the similar grades and similar achievements and similar backgrounds. And it's just, no, we need to get some other people. I mean, this, 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 I think that's what happened. Yeah. When, when that happened for you, Sam, did that kind of really rock your perception of, of the world and what? Oh, totally. What I was, was massively, and... I was massively depressed. I was, I was, I was really at one of my lowest points ever. And, and what happened is that my father wisely, um, introduced me to my first mentor named Eliza, Eliza Bergeson. And, um, she, she was able to using, um, a technique called brain gym, which used to be very popular here in New Zealand for about 10 years ago or so. Yeah, very, very yeah, popular. I remember the name. Yeah. And so she was just a master of it. She's just incredible. And she's one of the most compassionate people I've ever met. And, um, she was able to, using Brain Gym, actually help me rewrite some of my mental belief systems so I wasn't so down. And, mm-hmm. and my, I went to my math teacher, Mr. Martin, um, and I told him, he was, I was, uh, he was, uh, he, I was doing bridge club, I think, at the time, and he was in charge of it because he was a, he was a bridge player. And he, um, he asked me a question. He says, do you want to go to a school? Because I really wanted to feel like I should go to this waitlisted school or not. And he said, well, do you want to go to a school where everyone around you is like you? Or do you want to go around, go to a school where everyone is different from you? And I instantly said, different. He says, okay, then go to California and stop, stop being so down on yourself. And it's just such a clarifying piece of advice, you know. And I went, it was great. It was wonderful. Uh, going out to California was was a great decision, um, and the great biology department, all that stuff. Um, you know, chaos theory was born at that school. Mm, very uh, cool. Yeah, I'm interested, Sam, um, in in terms of rewriting your mental belief system as mm-hmm. well. Like how, and obviously, you kind of you went through this process with with your mentor Eliza, but mm-hmm. how long did you work on that and is that well, I'm still working yeah, on is, it. Is, is that something that you still work on? Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Like, what, is, what does that look like for you now? Well, if you, if you identify a belief that you want to change. Well, right now, the, the major tool that I use is called the work of Byron Katie. That, that's the primary tool that I use to identify and question stressful beliefs. And there, there's many different techniques to do it. 
Uh, some people work through the body, like like what Eliza did with Brain Gym, is you identify a belief and you identify the body's physical reaction to the belief, and then you do body movements along with a different belief system you want to ingrain to overwrite, like shaking an etch-a-sketch. Mm. Uh, you do it through the body, uh, through Brain Gym, or you do it cognitively through the work of Byron Katie, where you identify stressful belief and then you question it. So... Uh, to give to give an example, um, and, and this will summarize a thousand hours of study of Buddhism into two minutes. Good, so, good. So here, so buckle up. <laughs> All right. So you've heard the difference between pain. And, there's a, there's a difference between pain and suffering, right? Yeah. Okay. What is that? All right. Here's here's what it is. My understanding. So the difference between pain and suffering is pain is the event. Suffering is the beliefs that are tethered to the event that you keep thinking about and perpetuating for. Minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades after the event. So going back to what we brought up before about the difference between bullying and assault. So I'm in, I'm about the age of high school and, um, no, I'm in high school. Yeah. I'm in high school and, uh, I am being hit in the face behind the lockers by a larger athletic male. All right. And like, no one's, no one's helping. There's, I, I'm just, I'm being hit on the right cheek. Now, contrast that to around the same time, I'm attempting to, to learn how to play tennis. Keyword, attempting. Okay, so that's keyword's important because I messed up my timing royally and got hit full force by a tennis ball right in the left cheek. Just bam, right in. Now, that being hit full force on the left cheek by a tennis ball is arguably does more physical damage than a high school bully trying to hit me and I'm trying to stop it from being hit, right? Now, I, I'm not only meant to argue because I was there for both of them and the tennis ball did way more damage. So now with the tennis ball, I'm hit and, uh, you know, that sucks, that hurts, and I just keep going. But with being hit in the face in school, I, I tether these belief systems as I'm being hit in the face. I'm weak. I'm fragile. I'm frail. No one will protect me. The school doesn't care. My mother doesn't care. My father doesn't care. The security guards don't care. The principal doesn't care. My friends don't care. I'm alone. The world's unsafe. I have to survive on my own. I can't trust anybody. So there's the event of being having uh, some hard object hit my face, whether it's a fist or a tennis ball. That's pain. The, the suffering is all those beliefs that have now been tethered to that event. And what the work of Byron Katie does is it identifies the event. It identifies the beliefs tethered to the event. And then it uses a simple system to take one belief at a time, question that belief using four questions and what's called a turnaround to dissolve the belief so it's no longer tethered to the event. And then you systematically go to each belief that is tethered to that event until there's no more beliefs, stressful beliefs tethered to that event. And then that memory of being hit in the face has as much emotional charge as me stubbing my toe. So I can relive that memory and have no emotional reaction that's negative because I've questioned the beliefs surround it. So the work of Byron Katie is that system to identify, question, and then 
identify the, the event, identify the beliefs, then question the beliefs. So that's the primary method that I use today and that I recommend to all my patients. Um, and just as a, as a clarification, it's called the work of Byron Katie, not the easy and not the quick. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. So it, it takes some diligence and some self honesty to mm. be willing to look at a severely stressful event, whether it's a physical assault or other types of assault or an emotional assault or verbal or whatever it is. It, it takes some grit and some, some intestinal fortitude to be willing to sit in that space to identify and question those thoughts. Mm, yeah, and I, I completely hear where you're coming from with that. And I think like it's not it's not work that I'm familiar with, but it's it, it makes it makes mm-hmm. sense that the process to me. And I think it's as you say, it's an ongoing process because we're continually having new experiences all the time that we'll potentially view as negative. So we're going to have to continue to, to unravel and to question those beliefs and, and also just kind of not going through this process, but kind of questioning some of my own beliefs and kind of questioning some of the own things that have happened to happened to me or that I've caused to happen is quite uncomfortable. One for reliving that moment, but also two for some of the answers that I get back when I ask those questions, you're like, Oh, that, it doesn't really reflect that well on on the choice that I made at that time, um, and it's and it's tough. And I think, yeah, I I like the the emphasis on the work of Byron well, Katie. Well, with your theme of being uncomfortable is okay. The way to know if you're believing a stressful thought is if you feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. in your body. So so so, what is discomfort? Discomfort is a physical sensation in the body that's unpleasant that is yoked to a specific thought. So the difference between a thought and an emotion is the body. So a a thought is simply an image that flies through the head. Mm. Uh, A belief is when that thought takes residence in the part of the body and creates a sensation. And that's what's called an emotion. And if you have that, that's a belief. So you can have a stressful belief. That's when you're believing something stressful and you're having stressful sensations in your body or you're having a happy belief and you're having pleasant sensations in the body. So with the work of Byron Katie, you can, my my experience, you can truly be okay with the uncomfortable because it's a, it's a gentle alarm clock or sometimes not so gentle alarm clock to let me know that I'm believing something that's stressful. Mm. So, so there's, there is a possibility of not only being okay with the uncomfortable, but celebrating it because it's identifying, wow, I'm still believing this thing mm. that is, I didn't realize was still bothering me. Yeah. That's a, that's a cool way to look at it as well. Cause I mean, we, we want to, we obviously want to keep our emotions because if we just kind of cut everything off and became emotionless, then we'd also lose the ability to feel those happy and pleasant emotions as well but it's kind of reframing the the negative one or uh, Mm -hmm. the negative in parentheses ones and looking at that as kind of opportunities 
for yeah, us. Yeah, we're not we're not here to numb out. The work is mm. not about numbing out mm. or condoning the behavior of of being hit in the face. Not mm. not by a long shot. There's, there's no way that me by me questioning the beliefs it's somehow okay for some larger person to hit me. No, no, no. Mm. Uh, but but there's that painful event. But the suffering that event happens at that point in time. But my suffering that I perpetuated in my mind happened for twenty years. So I can be right or I can be free, mm. you know, and I, I would personally rather be free. Um, but for 20 years, I was really holding on to being right. And uh, use, now, now that I've gone through this process a bit, um, I know that if I am, f- that I'm feeling upset that it's belief systems that are kicking around my brain that, that are, stressful to me mm. and it doesn't make me complacent in the face of stressful circumstances or unfair circumstances or unjust circumstances or violent circumstances um it doesn't make in fact when i question those stressful beliefs it opens up an enormous box of creative energy to be present and uh responsive to the situations in hand instead of being triggered from all from a subconscious or conscious belief system of you know because for 20 years every time i saw a larger athletic male comes towards me i had a fear response Mm. you know that wasn't because of that person necessarily it's because of that event in high school years ago so now that that's cleared out i don't have that fear response it doesn't mean that i'm complacent you know not paying attention and not it's 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 just that i am now looking through a different lens and not operating out of some childhood patterning yeah and what got you to the point where you didn't need to be right anymore, where you kind of could take the steps to become free? So you know how, because um, uh, I, I help a lot of sugar addicts and mm. video game addicts, uh, as a former sugar addict and former video game addict myself, there's a there's a phrase in the addiction world is that it, you can't, even though someone may, I'm butchering the phrase, but you know, that, I'm paraphrasing, right? Uh, Someone may, there's a difference between someone who needs help and someone who wants help. And so I actually wanted to stop suffering, stop suffering. I wanted to stop because, because, you know, feeling self-righteous is a kind of a saccharine sweet sugar high. You know, I was bullied. I was, I was assaulted. I was this, I was that. And, 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 and it's just carrying that around like some flag and, and just how angry and bitter and resentful I was, just carrying that around. And I wa- I finally wanted to stop being so upset about this. And even though I needed to for a decade or two prior to that, um, I finally decided I wanted to. And 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 just again to be clear. Now that I'm clear from that situation, I'm not condoning the violence. Mm. I'm not. I'm not saying that was okay or I'm a doormat. I, I'm actually way more clear-headed if there's ever a situation that's that's in, that may potentiate into violence. I'm way more clear-headed about it instead of just reacting from that scared high schooler self. Um, but yeah, I just I wanted the help. I wanted to get out of it, and that's that's like an addict. You have to want the help before you can. Uh, actually realize the help and or you can be offered help all you want if you need it but don't want it but end up sabotaging it ignoring it or or rebelling against it mm. and your this is kind of a 
I don't know if you have an answer for this question, but is there a way to trigger someone or kind of help someone going from that needing help to the actually wanting help stage or is a way that someone can do that themselves or is it just an organic oh, process? Man, in your that is such a moving target. Everyone's mm. individual. You know, what's really interesting is when, when I run into people who've gone through AA or NA, um, I, I, disclaimer, I haven't, but I, when I give talks on addiction, there's a lot of AA and NA and other A people that show up. They always ask me the same question. They say, every one of them has asked me the exact same question. And the question is, because they're so fascinated by meeting a video game addict, because they've mm. like, I'm like some zoo animal they've not ever <laughs> met before. And I, they say the same question, what does bottom look like for you? Mm. What does bottom look like for you? They've asked me that over and over again, different people. And so I've answered it. And I've, and then I find, after like the third or fourth time, I was like, why do you guys keep asking me that? And they say, because it's at bottom when we decided to change. Mm. So, and, and what is bottom is a moving target. That's yeah. what I meant. Like everyone's bottom is different, yeah. you know? Yeah. So. And probably everyone's bottom changes depending on where they're at with things in their life. Like what it was someone's bottom in their, in their kind of twenties might be different in their, in their thirties oh, sure. when they've got. It's different between yeah. people and it's different within the same person depending on the where they're at in life. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. Excellent. I, yeah. It's a, it's a very eloquent answer actually. Um, now, to go further and to answer your mm. question, so there, that sounds like a pretty much of a downer. Oh, my God, I have to yeah. wait. Because if someone listening to this has like a family member or a friend or a colleague that is dealing with something pretty severe and and they and want the, that person to get help, but they don't want the help, it seems pretty disempowering to say, we just have to wait for them to hit bottom, you know, hope they don't go crashing through a six feet under, you know, mm. that's... There, there's, that's what, that's what interventionists are for now. And I'm not an interventionist. I do not, I only want to work with people who want the help, not who just need the help. I tried helping those who need the help, especially with video game addiction. And oh, wow, did I get blowback, um, from, from the kids who like the video games and the parents who enabled their kids to play gobs of video games now now before people like you get angry emails or whatever there, there's a there's a blog post on my blog called the five ways video games are used as parenting tools how they work and how they backfire and and i it's i spent a lot of time on this and i actually had both my parents and two of my sisters read this before i published it to make sure it was accurate and fair and not blamey so there's very real reasons why Parents allow children to play video games. You know, spoiler alert, it's uh, it, it's a quick way to get for the parent to give themselves a break. You know, distract little Johnny for 30 minutes while mom takes a nap or dad takes a nap or whatever. Uh, it's an instant form of punishment and reward. You know, if you do this, then I'll do that. Um, it's the cheapest babysitter out there. Okay, and, um, and this is real. Um, very real. I Multiple parents say, well, I'd rather they be playing video games all day then get involved in drugs, uh, risky behavior, uh, early, uh, underage sex, gang behavior, or other mischief. 
So with the video games, I know exactly what they're doing, where they are. And one parent even bragged to me how she put tracking software on the app because she knew that her son always loved video games on the thing so she could track it on the phone. So she used video games as a excuse to always track where her son is. Yeah. At least with the other stuff, you're learning valuable life skills. <laughs> getting involved in gang well there, there's and... <laughs> certain well, uh, just i'll just warn you right now there's certain authors out there who are just uh, there's no other way to say it tumescent at talking about how video games will change the world and just the way they talk is just so excited about the video games will solve everything and i'm just listening to this as like you know what you have no idea what the dark side is You've absolutely no idea what it's like on the dark mm-hmm. side of this. You, what these people are talking about is like the upper 5% that actually are using that technology for developing new, you know, clever ways to solve world problems. But then there's like the gray area 40%. Then there's a real dark, you know, a total time vacuum, destructive other 50%. Um, and in terms of in intervening, like, like there's, there's ways to intervene. Like there's a book, great book called It's Not Okay to Be a Cannibal. I, and, I'm, and I'm embarrassed to say I forget the author's names, but it, there's two authors. It's Not Okay to Be a Cannibal. Um, and they're two British, I believe British interventionists. And it's a fascinating book on intervention and what they say and they're dealing with really you know like like drug and alcohol addiction and all the rest of it um and what they say is really interesting is that the hardest 90 percent of the people that they do an intervention with actually receive help but only 10 percent of the families who meet with these authors to discuss the possibility of intervention actually do an intervention so the 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 weak point in intervention is not the person who needs the intervention, it's the families who are unwilling to agree to an intervention. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that is interesting. Do they bring up a reason that they might be against? Uh, multiple reasons. Um, yeah. I, I can't remember all of them. That's cool. That's but, a massive rabbit hole that we could, oh, <laughs> we yeah. could go down. I think, and yeah, we're just getting sucked further and further down, but it's, it's a fascinating conversation. But Sam, I, I know like you, at the moment, the, the work that you're doing, um, is around a lot around sugar addiction and chronic health and um, and fatigue and stress and I mean we've we've kind of touched on some of the reasons that that is important to you based on your on your background was uh, kind of going through a, a doctor of, of chiropractic um, did that kind of lead quite easily into the area that you're working in? at the moment or has that been something that you have sort of a thread that you've followed? Oh, I've been interested in natural medicine since I was a teenager ever mm. since uh, for, for me, what I had going on with my chronic health issues that weren't diagnosed within Western medicine and weren't treatable within Western medicine. I decided after getting my head on straight after working with Eliza that I wanted to be actually a naturopath. So mm-hmm. I went into university like doing pre-med and doing um, a holistic health practitioner um, certification uh, on evenings and weekends. So my life in university wasn't, wasn't partying or drugs or anything like that. It was studying and going to seminars and, 
you know, it was kind of like Batman, of like organic chemistry during the day, yeah. and then quietly change my identity and go to, you know, uh, herbalism class or or anatomy or you know, clinical anatomy class in the evenings or on seminars, and uh, I wanted to be a naturopath, but at the time um, when I was looking at uh, what professional school, what professional school in natural medicine I want to go to. Yeah, this is in the early 2000s. Licensing in the states for naturopaths was very minimal. I think at the time it was maybe five states, maybe, that had licensing. But chiropractors were in all 50 states. And approximately chiropractors who – in the states where they licensed naturopathy were on the verge of licensing naturopathy. Chiropractors had almost the exact same scope. Mm. As naturopaths. So it's like, why go to naturopathy school when I have more flexibility uh, and versatility as a chiropractor? So that's why I went to chiropractic school instead of naturopathic school. And it was just simply a mathematics game. So I've always been kind of a closet naturopath going through chiropractic school. So like I was leading nutrition clubs and, and you know, going to all the nutrition and later neuro- and, and neurology classes that I could. I fell in love with neurology when I was in chiropractic school, which you have to know nutrition in order to understand neurology. Um, and just, just absorbing all the information I absolutely could just going to every seminar that I could going through chiropractic school. Um, and same time, just, you know, doing well in classes, all that training from my parents (laughs) paid off. Um, and, uh, just, just really getting heavy into nutrition. I mean, I started teaching nutrition back in 2001 when I was running an organic kitchen co-op while in university and like teaching, you can imagine trying to teach college students that there's more to cooking food than boiling water or microwaving cheese, you know? Mm. And that's where I really got started into nutrition. And, uh, then when I came out to New Zealand in 2010, um, you know, it was putting all of these things together into a usable model. And, um, you know, and then I also, I also did an acupuncture degree while here in Auckland. So then added that, that little arrow to my quiver and just started working with really chronically ill patients. So there was fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue, um, adrenal issues, thyroid, um, just really, I mean, especially the fibromyalgia chronic fatigue patients, they're really tough. And what I found was that there were 10 common pillars of health, 10 common facets to their health. Uh, I call them pillars because the analogy, they were crumbling. And what I found with these chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, adrenal fatigue patients is that they had a minimum seven out of 10 pillars crumbling, either chronically or plus a couple acute. What usually happened was that there's been some chronic crumbling of these 10 pillars. And then there was a, an acute incident, whether it was uh, a physical head-on collision or a, a chemical assault, like someone got sp- their neighbor sprayed, you know, for spiders and they didn't tell their neighbor and the, it all just wafted in through the open window. This happened to one of my patients. And like they just got drenched in the spider spray off. Um, uh or a massive infection, like they go to a, a an island country and then they get food poisoning or whatever, and then two months later they have fibromyalgia. Um, that's happened about a half a dozen times in my practice. Um, 
or they have a major emotional event, a divorce, a death of a parent, a death of a child, a loss of a job, uh, whatever it is. And within two years of that acute event, it's always within two years or so, that's when the major symptoms onset. And that actually, that, that met that two year window from the major head on collision, whether it's an emotional head on collision, a physical, an infectious, a chemical, or whatever, that actually came from sitting in neurology class in chiropractic school. Cause one of my neurology instructors did a lot of litigation work, um, or expert witness testimony. And he said that the, the major insurance companies want to settle major car accidents as soon as possible as soon as possible because the major symptoms onset two years later. Mm. And when I, I literally sat there in class and thought to myself, huh, I wonder if that's true for a chemical head-on collision and or an emotional head-on collision as well. Mm. And in practice, it's absolutely true and I throw an infectious head-on collision as well. So you got this setup of the chronic crumbling of other pillars and then there's usually an acute event and then within two years they get the chronic issue. Yeah. What are what are the ten pillars, Sam? That uh, that have the potential to crumble for us. Sure. So the the ten pillar. The first one is brain, uh, and the brain and hormone system, and uh, what that is. That's called like like brain imbalance, uh, and the, like the adrenal system, the thyroid, the the pituitary. Like is is the brain and hormone system, the neuroendocrine system, is that out of balance? Because that is absolutely a pillar. Um, the it also explains why women get more of the chronic diseases than men. And this this was taught to me by my mentor. And uh, this isn't pop psychology; it's clinically played out in practice, and it's based on neuro neuroendocrinology. So uh, why is it that you noted like most it's mostly women that get the chronic you know chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, adrenal issues? Mm-hmm. It's mostly women, not all, but it's mostly women. Yeah. And, you know, the, the major delineating factor is that, uh, and I, I'm grossly oversimplifying neurology here, but it, clinically it bears out. So there's, women have more estrogen receptors on the right side of their brain. And, uh, and sorry, there is more estrogen receptors on the right side of the brain. There's more testosterone receptors on the left side of the brain, I should say. So women hormonally have naturally more estrogen. Men have naturally more testosterone in most cases. So when you have more estrogen, then the right side of the brain lights up more than the left. And if you have more testosterone, the left brain lights up more. Now, the, the issue is, is that the right brain through the insular cortex is connected to the sympathetic nervous system way more than the left brain. So if you have chronic right brain activation, you're going to have more of a chronic stress response. Chronic stress response means chronic breakdown, chronic disease, mm. all right? Where now men aren't off the hook for being chronically left brain. Okay. So hyper left brain. So left brain is action. Right brain is thinking. I'm simplifying again. So men act and don't think. So, so what do men usually die from? Violence, stupidity, accidents, and heart attacks. So violence is action and no thinking. Stupidity is the show Jackass. Hey, watch this. <laughs> Not many women on that show. Uh, accidents. Who gets ADD more? Boys or girls? Boys. Boys, yeah. All action, no thinking. I don't know if you've had that experience in the clinic, but it's like these five-year-old boys running around destroying everything and there's just no remorse whatsoever, just just yeah. acting. Yeah. And then the heart attacks is the left brain controls the rhythm of the heart and an arrhythmia can kill you, where the right brain controls the tempo 
So you can get tachycardia with hyperactive right brain, but an arrhythmia with hyperactive left brain. So this is why men get most of the heart attacks because they can get an arrhythmia. Now, again, this is not all men and all women. Not, not, it's, just, it's more like the 80-20 rule. So you can have a brain imbalance issue and a hormonal issue. That's the first pillar. And the second pillar is bowel and digestion and gut health. So this is, are you constipated? Which matters, you know, if there's a whole series of things I do to help teach people how to poo better. And if you, no one would live in a house where you couldn't flush the toilet, not for very long anyway. Mm. So if you don't have good, consistent daily bowel movements, then you are auto-toxifying yourself. Uh, the third, and in digestion is, are you able to actually break down and absorb the nutrients you actually eat. So people can buy all the organic food they want, but if they don't can't digest it, then they're creating problems. So digestion is absolutely critical. In fact, in, in certain other forms of natural medicine, they, they put digestion as the key to all of yeah. health. How I, I just want to jump in with a question. How can we improve our own digestion? Uh not watching TV while you're eating, not playing video games while you're eating like I used to do. Um, simple things to do to improve digestion. One is actually sit to eat. Don't have Facebook or the television on. Be with your food. Chew. I know this. You want to chew. Uh, to say chew 30 times is a bit arduous to people. What I tell uh, patients instead is take a mouthful, and then chew and breathe for three cycles as you're mm -hmm. chewing. That's way easier to count than yeah. 30. Um, if you want, uh, have salads and bitters at the beginning of the meal. Uh, neurologically, this makes total sense because it marries up to anthropology. Uh, and that's a very complicated way of saying the taste of bitter triggers uh, the acids to be produced in your stomach. Mm -hmm. So what? It, so as a hunter-gatherer, um, Things that tasted bitter were usually poisonous. So your body had this defense mechanisms. If you were dumb enough to eat something bitter, the body was like, okay, idiot, you're going <laughs> to swallow that. We're going to massively switch on cranial nerve 10 and dump a huge amount of acid on this thing that you just ate for whatever your gig was, whatever you, reason you did. So, so we can actually use that reflex to trigger stomach acid by eating. Now, some cultures do this. Like in Europe, they typically have their salads first. That's a very intelligent thing to do is to have the bitters up front. Um, the other thing you can do is have a bit of lemon juice or apple cider vinegar or lime juice at the beginning of the meal. Um, you can also have, if you think you've got some gallbladder, you know, fat digestion, you can have some beetroot. Uh, beets will help push the bile out of the gallbladder. Um, those are some basics. Mm. No, they're, they're very good tips. Sorry, Matt, I've hijacked your pillars as well. That's okay. This is meant to be high. The questions are great. Uh, I, uh, the third pillar, this is uh, body or the physical body. So this is all things structural. So this is chiropractic. This is physio. This is osteo. Um, this is any type of physical medicine. So it's spine, posture, adjustments, um, Injury work, dealing with pain and inflammation from the structural, muscle, tendon, fascia, ligament, you name it. It is all things physical. And and for people out there that say, oh, I'm into natural health. It's all about nutrition. They've never been in a bad accident. Mm 
and they don't truly know the value of what it's like to have be not injured. Okay, yeah. so so that's why they're ten pillars. They're all equal size, and they're all of equal importance. But the the equal importance on paper, but the individual people's pillars all crumble at different rates and have to different degrees. So to one person, one set of pillars is a higher priority than the others, mm-hmm. and, and that's borne out in practice. Mm-hmm. The um, burst ex- the fourth pillar is burst, which stands for burst exercise, which is the combination of high intensity interval or actually safe high intensity interval training which the acronym spells s h i t or shite so i teach my patients how to shite uh, <laughs> appropriately because there's right and wrong ways to do high intensity interval training uh most importantly they don't rest enough in between and they don't walk enough so high intensity is the yang walking is the yin as you could probably tell from earlier in the discussion i'm not a fan of jogging um, and actually write about why that is. It's has to do with a chronic adrenal stress response, just releasing constant cortisol and that erodes away all their muscles. That's why they look so gaunt. Um, fifth pillar is biotoxin. So that's all things toxic. And that list is getting longer and longer each day. It's everything from, you know, sprays that are used on agriculture to um, preservatives in food to toxins in the air, toxins in the water, uh, food intolerances I put in that camp as well. Mm. And uh, six nu- six pillars, bionutrients, all things you need to eat on a daily basis, uh, good healthy food, supplements if necessary based on where you are in the world and how you were raised. You may need that. The seventh pillar is breakfast and routines. So I found that 99% of all my chronically ill patients had one of my four, one of the four bad breakfasts. Um, I actually wrote my first ebook on that because it was such a common thing. I was like, I have to write about this. No one's under doing this. So the four bad breakfasts are spoiler, uh, skipping it, uh, sugar breakfast, coffee only breakfast, or processed grains breakfast. Okay. Yeah. 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 That that makes sense. What are what are your thoughts on intermittent fasting then? Uh, intermittent fasting is a topic that is quite in vogue at the moment. Mm. Um, most of the people that blog about intermittent fasting are twenties to forties, healthy males, mm-hmm. not middle-aged females with adrenal fatigue and two kids. So I would never recommend skipping breakfast to a middle-aged adrenally fatigued female ever. Uh, and I would say do intermittent fasting, but don't skip breakfast, skip lunch and dinner. So the, the 20s to 40s, you know, healthy biohacker males, they're kind of, they've got a bit more flexibility on that. That's why skipping breakfast is all the rage. And I think that is okay potentially for them as long as they're not kidding themselves and have second stage adrenal fatigue where they're all amped up on their own cortisol. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a dumb idea for recommending that to everyone in all circumstances. I mean, you, you don't give that to fatigued, uh, to fatigued middle-aged females who've had, or who've had their second kid and they're totally depleted. Um, I'd say skip the lunch and, and dinner. Um, and, but only I, I tell my patients, I have a whole write-up on intermittent fasting, massive write-up on patients think it's appropriate for. And they say, skip two meals a week. That's it. Just, just do two meals a week. Either skip two dinners or skip a lunch and a dinner on the same day and do it 
the day before you go to the farmer's market, by the way, you need to go to the farmer's market. So the reason why I say that is that the day before the farmer's market, you have the least amount of veggies in the fridge. It's a perfect mm. day to do intermittent fasting. So, yeah, that's kind of the short okay. short answer, supposedly, to, uh, supposedly short answer. Mm. Yeah, I, I like that. And, I mean, there's a lot of people that are into intermittent fasting. Um, and, I don't know, every now and then you uh, you might not like this, but every now and then I miss, I miss breakfast. But I'm a 20 to 40-year-old... Male, so I probably fall within the demographic that uh, actually yeah. it's not too bad for me. So why is it called break fast? It's because mm. your body at night when you sleep has a slow drip of cortisol to trigger the liver to release fuel so the brain can stay alive. That's mm. what it's for. So when you're asleep, you're not eating. So your body needs to get fuel from somewhere. Now, when you wake up, you are have you have high the highest levels of cortisol when you wake up within actually it's actually 30 minutes after you wake up your cortisol level doubles now if you don't eat or break the fast you will continue to be you going through your cortisol like just keep pumping out cortisol because cortisol is the main hormone to trigger fuel release for your brain to operate so mm-hmm. until you get fuel from another source like eating you're just going to continue to wear out your adrenal glands and overuse them and abuse them. And that's also why a lot of people love skipping breakfast because they feel so alert and awake is because they're on this cortisol high. Mm. So, so there, there's, there's just, there, there's reasons why they, they feel just so good in the morning if they're in, if they have a higher cortisol release, but it, it's not necessarily a long-term viable lifestyle. So that's why I say have breakfast to save your adrenals but skip lunch or lunch and dinner mm-hmm. yeah. yeah no that makes that makes sense and again we've gone out down a rabbit hole there mate but uh well there's 10 rabbit holes we yeah, can pick good, from good, man good. let's um let's get into the into the next rabbit hole sure the next one eight is the eighth pillar is called bothers and that's stress in all its forms whether it's financial stress or relationship stress or work stress or um cultural stress or even just clutter Mm. Is a str- I mean, there's a great book called The the Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. And it's just one of the most brilliant little books I think everyone should read because it, it gives it gives a sane approach to dealing with objects, physical objects in your life. Uh, other forms of stress is, geo- is electromagnetic stress. So there's some people are sensitive. A lot of people aren't. So there's a lot of naysayers out there that, you know, electro electrosmog doesn't exist because they're not sensitive to it. Um, there's also stress of watching TV in a screen. And you see this with, um, kids who play video games, you know, why they glued to this. I, I write about this. I have an ebook on, um, on video game addiction. Uh, and in it, I talk about the tectospinal reflex. So the tectospinal reflex is a beautiful scrabble word for the eye, the eye brainstem uh, the, sorry, the, the, the brainstem neck turning reflex. So basically, uh, when there's a rapid change in light color or brightness, the eye will target or another scrabble word saccade to, to whatever that rapid change in color, motion, or brightness. It's like when you're driving and there's a police light up ahead, you, everyone has to reflexively look at it, mm. it, it at, at first. Okay. And what is a police light? It's a rapid change in motion 
because it's moving. It's different colors, red and blue, and it's a change in brightness. It's brighter as the light swings towards you. It's dimmer as it goes away. That's why everyone turns to look, to look at it initially. So, and you have to do it. It's a survival reflex because if you're walking in the bush, you know, 10,000 years ago, and you see there's a little flash of orange in the corner of your eye, you're going to look at it. You know, even though you, you don't, you're not, you don't have a focus on it. Your, your eyes are going to dart to it and your, your adrenal glands are going to fire because you don't know if that's, you know, a real tiger or if it was just a leaf falling or if it's a bear or whatever. I don't know how many orange bears out there, but whatever, <laughs> brown. Uh, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So, so every time that does it, you fire a stress response. That's why when you're watching TV, you are automatically having a stress response. When you're playing video games, you are in a stress response because that reflex is firing a rapid change in color, light, and a color, brightness, and motion. A rapid change in color, brightness, and motion. What is a video game? What is mm-hmm. television? Okay, that's, that's where the glued to the screen comes from. It's because you are anthropologically helpless against staring at something that rapidly changes in color, motion, or brightness. So there's many different stressors and there's many strategies. We talked about one, like the work of Byron Katie to deal with stress, mm-hmm. to deal with screen stress. I have an ebook I wrote called seven ways to game less. And it goes through seven separate strategies on how to pull off the video games and off of screens in general. Um, the ninth pillar is bugs, which is infections, mold, especially in this country, lots of mold here, mm-hmm. uh, infections, mold, and dysbiosis. Uh, I've seen it many times. People have a gut issue, uh, an infection issue, or mold. That's one of major pillar that's crumbling. And the tenth pillar is bedtime or sleep. So I've, I've named them all with B's. First pillar is brain. Second pillar is bowel. Third pillar is body. Fourth pillar is burst. Fifth pillar is biotoxins. Sixth pillar is bionutrients. Seventh pillar is breakfast. Eighth pillar is bother, bothers. Ninth pillar. Ninth pillar is bugs. Tenth pillar is bedtime. As an easy way to make your checklist of where are you and that's actually how i evaluate patients Mm. is i have a 150 question odd survey um that is explicit like pillar number one brain and hormones and here's all the questions about that next section pillar number two on digestion all the questions on that so i actually use this to assess because i found that again all the fibromyalgia chronic fatigue adrenal fatigue all the chronic issue issues that people come to me with they have minimum seven out of ten, which explains why, uh, particularly the chronic fatigue fibromyalgia patients, they've been they've been thrown. In, it's kind of a it's a horrible word. Like the wastebasket diagnosis is because you know everything people try in air quotes doesn't quote work, and so then all the their GPs, their families, their friends all say, "Well, you're just depressed, or you must be making it up. Go take a antidepressant, and leave me alone." It's it's. People in chronic pain and chronic pain, they're not making it up, mm. okay? What's happened is that they have seven-plus pillars crumbling all at the same time. And if you go to do see a, a practitioner or do a protocol or talk, talk to a specific health personality, most of those, you know, practitioners or protocols, they're only really good at covering one to three pillars, not seven-plus at the mm. same time. So if you've got seven plus pillars crumbling, you're going to need a complete synergistic, comprehensive, simultaneous program to identify each pillar and give you the simplest possible, most winnable interventions per pillar to get, re- to get the results, to, to patch up each pillar. 
Mm. Because other, otherwise, you're going to get unpredictable results or no results uh, because you're not dealing with the seven plus that you need. Yeah, yeah. Now that that makes complete sense. And I was just kind of thinking as we went through that, that obviously I work as a, and most listeners that listen regularly to the show know as I, I work as a physiotherapist. And yeah, there are a couple of pillars there that I would be more than comfortable kind of assessing and, and dealing with. But oh, for sure. Probably two and maybe a little bit of uh, amateur work on a third, potentially. Um, but yeah, that, that kind of comprehensive viewpoint is is really beneficial. And uh, I'm just mindful, Sam, that uh, today is not one of the days that I'm, I'm skipping dinner. So I don't, wanna, I don't want to keep you for too long. Mate. I don't know if, it, if you are or not. But I thought what we could do is before we kind of tie things off, because I'd love to get you back on again, because I think you offer tremendous value for for everyone that's uh, that's listening. Yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love to go over at some point the addiction model. Because yeah, this, yeah. this is actually, the 10 pillars is actually just one-fifth of the addiction paradigm. This okay. is actually a sub-framework of the addiction framework, which is right. what I'm really excited about. Let's lock that in for next time, mate. Okay. But can we do a, maybe do a quick case study on sure. on this? Um, and I'll just use myself as an example, because I think we, we talked... Uh, can you need to sign a disclaimer here? Yeah, no, 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 no. Form? Briefly, okay. briefly, depends on what <laughs> advice you're going to give me. Um, but uh, I am... This is for information. Information. And purposes. entertainment purposes yeah. only. Yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> Re's been reasonably tired, uh, kind of over the last few months. So waking up in the morning, reasonably tired. So kind of going, working, working through this stuff. Um, brain, not a hundred percent sure on uh, all the internal workings of that. I'd probably need to answer some of your questions in regards to that. Um, my brain kind of seems to always be on. So let me ask you a question about brain and hormone health. Um, So are you more tired in the morning or, and you suddenly have this higher burst of energy in the evening on most days? Like, do you wake up tired, but paradoxically have more energy after say six o'clock? I wake up tired. Sometimes I have more energy after six o'clock, but it tends to be in regards to what I'm doing. If I'm getting out and exercising or getting out and doing something, then I have more energy mm-hmm. if i'm sitting around not doing anything then i don't right so there's there's about a half dozen different types of fatigue mm. so there's uh what's called adrenal fatigue where it's cyclic where mm-hmm. you you wake up tired and then you eat and you have some energy or you have a coffee or donut or i'm not saying you but just yeah, the yeah. collective you it's coffee and then yeah. coffee and then about a mid-morning you have a crash and then you pick up again after another mid-morning coffee or tea or whatever mm. And then you have a crash again in the afternoon. And then after about six o'clock, the energy goes up and then it's hard and you want to get everything done and then it's hard to get to sleep. So this is, that's the cyclic mm. up down of adrenal fatigue. Thyroid fatigue is different because you wake up tired and stay tired. And when you hit nine o'clock, you just want to go to bed and stay in bed. It's not more energy like with people with adrenal fatigue because their cortisol levels shoot up. Mm-hmm. Then there's toxic fatigue. Toxic fatigue is where the liver is overwhelmed. And these are the people who have multiple chemical sensitivities, um, and or haven't been told as such, but they're fine. Their energy levels are okay, and then they get exposed to something like exhaust or bad perfume or off-gassing from rug or carpet, and then they're down. They are down for the count for a couple of days until they slowly 
crawl out of it. And that's because the liver has had to take its time to process all the toxins. Then there's infectious fatigue. Now, anyone who's been sick knows what infectious mm. fatigue is yeah. like. Okay. And then there's chronic infectious fatigue, like this kind of subclinical, they don't realize that they've got hijackers in their gut, which could be contributing to it. Um, I mean, that one reason parasites do about five things in the gut. They eat your nutrition. They poop inside you. They gnaw on your organs. They, um, secrete weird chemicals that affect, you know, your biochemistry and they can create molecular mimicry, like, and, and trigger some autoimmune responses. Um, then there's adrenal fatigue, thyroid fatigue, toxic fatigue, infectious fatigue. Um, and then if, if you want to kind of have some sort of and then there's emotional fatigue where you can just exhaust yourself out. Mm. Uh, and then there's just insomnia-based fatigue where you're just not sleeping well. There's over-exercising fatigue. And, and there's some people that, you know, telling them to cut back on their exercises, like giving them the worst ad- advice ever. Cause not, not giving them the, the worst news ever. Mm. Um, and then some, some combination of those fatigues, you get chronic fatigue. Yeah. So does any of those sound similar to you? <laughs> I mean, potentially the, a combination of the, the first one, so the adrenal fatigue. So I do tend to kind of perk up a bit more in a cyclical fashion after, especially after I've eaten. Right. Um, but also the, the kind of exercise induced fatigue as well. So I ran an ultra marathon last oh. year coupled with doing, obviously doing the podcast, but working full time as well. Um, right. It was a good experience, and the fact that I was like, I learned a fair bit about myself and kind of what I, mm-hmm. w- where I could go to in some in some places. So it served its purpose with that, but it's kind of left left me feeling a bit tired afterwards. So they're they're probably the two that I that sound most like what's happening for me there okay. at the moment. Yeah, yeah. In terms of that pillar, a pillar, brain power pillar. You mean? Yeah, that okay. brain pillar. Yeah, yeah. Second pillar. Second pillar. The bowel is relatively regular um and relatively consistent i won't bristol still chart it but um yeah so for those of you don't know the bristol still chart is the seven different types of poops Uh, yes people have charted poops and you can look that up and (laughs) amuse yourself don't don't go based on poop emojis alone there's actually (laughs) professionals who do this yeah yeah uh but what about digestion you know it's like do you you know if you, eat, if you eat corn can you play spot the corn after it's after it's coming out the other end yeah okay yeah. so that's a digestion issue yeah so there, there's more than just simply consistently can going. anyone digest corn some people can okay interesting Absolutely. you should be able to yeah yeah so i know it's become kind of a caricature and yes there's a poop emoji with corn in it that's thank you apple for releasing that last yeah. year um the, there, there's digestion. So it's a digestion, poor digestion can take different forms, whether you have mm. burping or bowel gas or your stool has changes consistency or as things floating in it. Um, or just simply like you feel really tired or like in some people have pain syndromes or like a, some mm. people are reactive to nightshades, you know, so there's, and that may be more in the toxicity pillar than the yeah. digestion pillar, the, the, the nightshade example. But but indigestion can take different form. Brain fog can be after eating within two hours of eating a meal can be a sign that your just your digestion is not okay. up to snuff. Yeah. Interesting. I'll I'll watch out for kind of when that happens after mm-hmm. after meals over the next couple of days. Um for the for the physical body, mm-hmm. 
Uh, it's reasonable at the moment. I've got a little bit of an Achilles niggle on the on the right hand side, mm-hmm. um, but I think that's kind of a carryover from the ultra marathon that I had a bit of hamstring tendinopathy going on afterwards, and that's affected the way that I've uh, right. that I'm moving. And I've had a previous Achilles problem on this side, so it's just uh, a little bit aggravated. So just one thing about the Achilles, it, it's the um, it, it's the embryological uh, sprout off point from the medial hamstring. So a lot of people who have um, plantar fasciitis or Achilles issues go upstream to the medial hamstring because if the medial hamstring is tight, it could be tugging on the um, it could be tugging on the the calf muscles, mm. which if they're tugging, if they're pulling on the the back of the calcaneus bone, which is then creating kind of a flattening effect of the foot, which then puts a lot of pressure on the um, plantar fascia. So, so when I've worked on people with plantar fasciitis, um, I always go up, check upstream to the medial hamstring. So, you know, talk to your I'm, physio buddy. I'm, I'm working, I'm working on both at the okay, moment. Great. The hamstring, okay. the hamstring's improving faster than the, uh, than the Achilles. Uh, burst exercise, you'll probably be happy to know that I'm not doing much running other than kind of taking the dog for a bit of a jog. Sure. Uh, every now, uh, on a daily basis, but that's only about a K. Um, mostly I'm do I do a bit of, uh, high intensity training, uh, what, maybe once, twice a week and mostly kind of yoga at okay. the moment. Well, high intensity by my definition is if you feel your muscles burn. Yeah. I'm not really interested in heart rate mm. or being feeling puffed like you're out of breath. Yeah, yeah. It's the burn that physiologically triggers the growth hormone because it's lactic acid mm. under high intensity interval training circumstances that then triggers the hypothalamus through. It's actually five separate mechanisms. I got I saw it charted out by uh, Dr. Smith. Uh, Dr. Mm. Uh, it was Mark J. Smith. That was unbelievable. So it, it's lactic acid is actually a hormone in high intensity interval training circumstances i mean yeah. who knew that like mm, that blew that my mind so so it's the lactic it's the deep muscle burn that triggers the growth hormone yeah. response not heart rate yeah 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 no i'm i definitely get a muscle burn with this so it's kind of all resistance okay. my intensity training that i'm that i'm doing with it um biotoxins i am i'm not sure about that one Okay, that that's a questionnaire thing. There's so many, uh, but by by far mm. next to next to the adrenal and uh, hormone questions, the longest section on my survey is the toxin section. Yeah, it is. There's just so many. That's it's it. so many. It's so tragic. It's probably a a rabbit hole too big for this podcast at the moment. Well, we haven't even gotten to functional testing yet. No, you know, no. you can you can te- every pillar has tests. Mm. You know, whether it's comprehensive digestive stool analysis for parasites and digestion, inflammatory markers for body uh, exercise. You check you check for adrenals on that one. Mm. Uh, toxins as whole heavy metal panels. You know, nutrition you can check for and food intolerances testing for biotoxins is nutrition panels. Uh, there's sleep panels there's uh mitochondrial panels you know you can yeah, you can get yeah. all that stuff yeah mm. obviously there is the the flashing blue light on this microphone yeah which i have i, I have taped, <laughs> you've taped over, over with i cover that with my hand as well. oh i'm feeling better blinking already, actually. so the, the blinking blue light of death is what i call <laughs> on the on the old mac yeah, mac laptops yeah. <laughs> so we were on bionutrients for you yeah the bionutrients um Good question. I 
try and uh, kind of minimize my refined sugars throughout the day, but sugar's a little bit insidious. I was having a tin of beetroot the other day, and that's got added sugar in it. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Yeah. Uh, if, if, when in doubt, if you're eating something that has more than, if you're buying something that has more than one ingredient in it in package, it's not mm. food, it's a food product. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if it's sweetened with something you don't know what it's sweetened with, you assume it has artificial sweetener in it and you stay mm. away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of bionutrients, just one thing to the – everyone's metabolism can be different. Mm. So the way to really know without genetic test like, – because you can genetically test if you're paleo, Mediterranean, high carb or whatever. That, that technology exists. The lab's in Melbourne. I, I run these tests all the time. I mm. love this genetic – those called fit genes. Um. So I run this test called Carb Choice, a simple cheek swab, and you can genetically determine your optimal diet. For those of you that want to do it through trial and error, the key is to know your metabolism. So if you are hungry between meals, you didn't eat correctly for your meal prior. You should feel after each meal full, calm, and energized for at least four to six hours. If you're snacking, you either ate outside your genetic metabolism, you're emotionally eating, or you have a parasite or some strong metabolic disorder that needs medical attention. So, so people should not, this whole thing of morning tea and afternoon tea is nonsense. You should not be needing to eat. We would never have survived as hunter gatherers. We need to mm. eat every two hours. It, it, it's totally crazy. Yeah. Totally crazy. It's a nice time for a work break though. Well, sure. I'm not saying <laughs> don't have a break, but if you're going to have a yeah. break, walk around, yeah. move, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, drink water. Yeah. Um, breakfast, definitely have breakfast, uh, mostly it's, I don't know how you feel about oats actually. Uh, I have a whole section of my ebook on oats yeah. and, and, um, I, if you're going to have oats, get oat groats if you, or not, sorry, get steel cut if you can. Okay. Because oats technically don't have any gluten, mm -hmm. but they gluten contaminated because they're okay. processed in the same mills. And I think okay. most of the contamination comes from the flattening. Of yeah. the rolling pins to flatten the oats, okay. into, yeah. and you got to soak them overnight in something slightly acidic. So it's water mm -hmm. plus a little bit of vinegar to help mm -hmm. deactivate the enzyme inhibitors. Okay, and then you throw yeah. out the water the next morning, and then you cook it. And then when you, you cook it, it'll cook faster. It'll be easier to digest, and add some good fat to it, like mm -hmm. coconut oil or a ghee. Yeah, things like yeah, that. Yeah, I usually have some some fruit and some coconut yogurt with it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, just uh, definitely have fat with grains. Yeah, yeah. Bothers, um, nothing major. I think I'm, uh, I've got a lot of stuff on my to-do list. Just a couple, couple of discomforts? Yeah, just a couple of discomforts, which I'm, I, I try and kind of. Be okay with? Yeah, be okay, but put in strategic discomfort. Dude, I'm using well. puns of the name of your own podcast, I like, I like man. That. Nothing? I like You're that. You're not even laughing? <laughs> no, not even a courtesy laugh. Okay. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you. I feel better now. Right. <laughs> um, strategic discomforts, but a little bit of a low okay. level of, oh, there's my to-do list. Uh, bugs. Again, I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't had food poisoning recently. Bugs, the issue around bugs is if people have had antibiotics, mm. um, uh, if they've been traveling, if they got sick while yeah. they were traveling, but then they quote recover, but then mm. came back and they just never were quite right. Yeah. If they've got digestive symptoms like, like bloating or, mm. or alternating diarrhea, constipation yeah. or okay. things like that. I, did, I had a, had, got a skin infection last year, a staph infection, um, 
so there's, there's potential for, for that yeah. as well. Uh, my bed time. Just to be clear, I'm not against antibiotics. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm for for judicious, appropriate use yeah, of yeah. it. Yeah. But but the antibiotics do their own damage, and so if you, you may need some gut healing protocols mm. after that mm. to help reseed the gut and heal it up. Yeah. Yeah. And from a bedtime perspective, I'm trying to improve with that and uh, and kind of keep a consistent bedtime. Uh, at around sort of 10 o'clock at night uh, at the moment, and I usually get up at about 6 the next morning. Okay, so so with bed, with bedtime, um, and this is coming from someone who's an insomniac for 12 years, mm. so I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about helping people with sleep issues. Um, you have to measure not just duration. Am I getting eight hours? Because I've treated shift work nurses, and yeah, sure, they get their eight hours, but they're dead in the water. Like yeah, they're yeah. The Nurses collectively are some of the most unhealthy patients I've ever worked with. And, and that has to do with, it has to do with that they get these terrible shift work schedules. They're, they're physically in danger because they're lifting patients who are either unpredictable or, or combative or just half paralyzed, mm-hmm. uh, much less or movement disorders. You know, they can't control their flailing arm. They're surrounded by all these toxic chemicals that are within the hospitals. They're surrounded by the infections that are around the hospitals. And they're dealing, they're, they're dealing with the stress of not only the patient, but the family members of the patient, the administration and the staff, and probably a doctor who's half their age mm-hmm. telling us. So they're at the center of the cyclone. And so they, they have one of the toughest jobs, in my opinion, on the planet. And, and I, and I'm so grateful to every person who decides to become a nurse, but it's a tough gig. And I wrote, I wrote an article. It was, I think, the third article I ever wrote on my blog on how to nap. And I wrote it for my nurse patients because there's a way to strategically nap. And, uh, and there's also a way to really strategically sleep. So it's not just about eight hours because, because of the shift work mm. issue. It's about duration, consistency, and depth. Those are the three things you need to focus on with sleep. Are you consistently going to bed at the same time? Are you having your set amount of long hours and is the sleep deep enough and uninterrupted? That is how you look at sleep, not just I'm getting my eight hours. You know, it's, it's, yeah, that's one checkbox of several. Okay. So Sam, I mean, obviously this isn't kind of advice for everybody, but for someone, someone like me, Mm -hmm. um, are there any kind of a couple of safe, effective tips that I could start with to, uh, look to decrease my fatigue? Well, number one is just be honest with yourself mm. and just pay attention to what you're doing through the lens of these 10 pillars yeah. and and look at, okay, do I am I exhibiting signs of a more of adrenal flavor of t- fatigue versus, say, a toxic level of fatigue mm. and just start paying attention. Pay more attention to your digestion habits. You know, are you chewing? Are you taking your bitters first? Are you... Does your stool change or your or gas, whether it's coming out the mouth or coming out the other end? Is there any changes with food? Is your digestion off? Paying attention to, you know, as a physio, you obviously pay attention to injuries in your mm. physical body. So this is very common when I when I when I've worked with colleagues in the natural health field. They're usually pretty switched on when it comes to exercise and their physical body. Usually, not always. Um, and, and taking physical pain seriously, and especially spinal misalignments. And again, that's my bias as a chiropractor, but spinal misalignments do have a significant effect on the nervous system um, and also digestion because the 
organs of digestion are controlled mm. from the nerves that come from the spine. In terms of exercise, you've already had your marathon experience. For those of you out there who are just desperate to have a midlife marathon, here's how to do it. You don't jog it. You walk, sprint it. You walk, then you sprint for a minute or less, then you walk until all the burning is gone, then you sprint again, then you walk until you're completely recovered, then you sprint again, and you just repeat that cycle. That way you're not going to damage yourself to the level you would with marathoning. Um, and for those of you that look, I have a whole video I put out on this whole thing in an article, but yeah, I'm really not a fan of marathoning. So for the toxins, you just got, that is probably the biggest educational piece everyone has to go through. Mm. So you can, you can study toxins, PhDs worth of toxins, but, but the shortcut is you, you will learn all you can and then you will come back to utter simplicity. Did it exist? 10,000 years ago. No, probably best to avoid it. Simple as yeah. that. Okay. Um, and then there's a complication that with food and food intolerances. So there's, there's really advanced food intolerance testing called the ALCAT, which is now available in Wellington. Thanks to lots of lobbying on my part to get it here. You can only get it in New Zealand in Christchurch, Wellington, Napier and Auckland at this point it used to be only Napier and Auckland until recently, but, but, some foods may actually create an inflammatory response. Seeming like I, I have an inflammatory response. It's charted, measured to salmon. You know, one of the most supposedly superfood mm-hmm. anti-inflammatory mm-hmm. foods out there. I, not for me. You know, it's it's salmon, it's millet, it's cherry, it's oregano, pineapple. Um, I'm severely inflammatory response to it's like cosamine and chlorella. You know, like you wouldn't think that, right? Mm-hmm. But but there's actually individually people can have severe food intolerances, and those can be tested. Through blood. There's also a thing called pulse testing, which you can do to not, you don't have to get an expensive blood test to do it, but the blood test makes it way faster. Uh, and you can get 200 foods and 50 herbs done in one go. Pulse testing is where you can check your pulse before you eat, put food in your mouth and let it circulate in your mouth for 30 seconds and see if your pulse rate jumps by about 10 beats or more. And then that shows you're having a reaction to it. So there, there's, there's kind of hacky ways to biohacky ways to find food intolerances. Uh, for breakfast, you know, I'm a big fan of protein, fat, and vegetables for breakfast. Um, for your stress levels, I mean, yeah, man, you're the best gauge of what stressors are affecting you, like really affecting mm-hmm. you. The bugs and infections, you, you gotta, you know, if you've had that, like we talked about before, your history of antibiotics, or if you've got digestive things going on, or, or just a history of exposure. Um, that's maybe worth exploring and sleep we talked about yeah cool yeah. thank you for that sam it's uh definitely some things for for me and hopefully the listeners to have a think about as well mate before we wrap this up i want to ask you those questions that i ask uh, ask everyone towards the end mm-hmm. uh what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how did you get through it uh um I wouldn't call it the last one. I'll just call it a very strong one. Um, I had, I had a very strong disagreement with how it was being billed by a utility company. And they were trying to, like, they knew they were in the wrong and they were just trying to bully me into paying something I shouldn't have paid for to begin with. And in fact, I did a podcast on this. I interviewed the guy that helped me. Uh, and, and over the phone, when they were telling me this, I said, 
I'm hanging up now. I'm too emotionally amped up. We need to, we'll be discussing this in writing over email. Click. So that was the first step. And then the next thing I did is I called a professional. In this case, it was a negotiator who was a friend of mine and he was in charge of our uh, BNI group, our Business Network International group at the time, uh, Maurice Stowell. And, and I said, Maurice, I have a job for you. I, I am too triggered. I need a professional to do this for me. Uh, here's a situation. Please handle this for me. And he did. It was great. Okay. So the, I, the big message is hire a professional if you're in trouble. Hire a professional. It was working with Maurice. In this case, it was negotiation was, took so much stress off of me and it got the bill handled to an agreeable settlement on both parties. Okay. So, um, yeah, hire, I, I hired a professional. Nice, nice. Sam, what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do and why is that uncomfortable for you? Um, the next thing is dealing with the uh, mortality of my parents. You know, my father's, uh, my father has uh, advancing dementia and that's quite um, harrowing and trying. Uh and, uh, you know, this, this is a man with an MD and a PhD and, you know, two books under his belt and, um, mm-hmm. a MacArthur also, uh, MacArthur award. And it's just, it's just really, it's just really challenging to see, uh, see someone with that amount of intellectual, um, grunt, you know, go through this process, mm-hmm. uh, the way I'm going through it is I'm learning a lot by being present with my father because it's as, as the, as the intellect recedes, emotional presence counts more. Mm. So I have to be very present with him as opposed to just go on autopilot like we used to with just intellectual conversations. And I have to, and so for anyone who's dealing with uh, an aging parent or relative or anyone who's got dementia or a similar neurological degenerative disorder, there, there's some things that really helped. One is talk slower, look them in the eyes so they can lip read, pause after each sentence to allow the information to process Know the times of day when they're most alert. Don't discuss more complicated issues when they're sleepy or their brain is shutting off. Um, be, check your own emotional state because your anxiety level, your meaning my, like, example, like my, my level of angst is way more palpable to him because he's not, he doesn't have this massive frontal lobe override using his massive intellect to not be affected by whatever anxiety I may have. That's not there as much anymore. So it's, it's, this is a clumsy metaphor, but it's like working with horses, you know, like you really got to be present when working with a horse. Mm. You'd be super present. Okay. And, and the horse will pick up everything. Uh, and, um, uh, that's, I'm, I, I'm gonna, it's a quite a learning experience. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that's definitely discomfort on the radar. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Sam. And um, my my thoughts are with you with that. Thank and you. I wish you, wish you the best of luck with it because it's, it's a tough experience to oh, yeah. to go through. Um, and I mean, this, the next, next question that I've, I've got for you, we've kind of touched on a little bit, but do you have any other strategies that you utilize when dealing with uncomfortable situations? Um, well, one of the first things, you know, I would recommend is walking through the 10 pillars in one's mind as a checklist, because mm. sometimes the discomfort has nothing to do with the object of the discomfort. Is everything to do with you didn't sleep well last night or you ate something funny or inflammatory, or you haven't pooped that day. And that may sound odd to an adult audience, but when you ask any parent, any parent, anywhere in the world, anywhere, if a child is misbehaving and they're under the age of two, what is one of the first questions they ask? Honey, did you poop today? Oh, like they instinctively, but suddenly when you're over the age of two or five, suddenly pooping regularly doesn't matter anymore, you know, to how your mind state is. So I know that sound may sound odd, but, but I'm, Dead serious about that. Like, so you look at their 10 pillars, like look at your bowel function, look at have you exercised that day? Have you slept well? Have you eaten well? Have you avoided toxins? Have you had breakfast? Um, have you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Because what, what may be bothering you is not what's bothering you. It's just that your resilience is down. Mm. Um, and if there's something that's genuinely bothering you, despite whatever level of resilience, um, one of the first things I, I do is I try to take a deep, slow breath. Just a deep, it's called box breathing. Four, like, like shape of a box. You breathe in for the count of four, you hold for the count of four, you breathe out for the count of four, you hold for the count of four, like a box. That will neurologically turn you towards parasympathetic nervous system state, the calm, relaxation, rest and digest, calm state. Um, and that the conscious choice to breathe will automatically shift your awareness to a solution, a, a, a solution, and put you in parasympathetic uh, mm. to help calm down. And it doesn't that doesn't mean it's going to solve the situation, but it means it's going to put you in a better frame of mind. And I also recommend doing the work of Byron Katie, you know, coming full circle from mm. the beginning of this this chat. And not just doing Byron Katie when you're stressed out, which is sometimes hard to do, but do prophylactically, like just do one stressful belief a day to just keep chipping away, keep chipping away at kind of core belief systems and or even peripheral belief systems. And a very common experience of people doing the work is that they'll do the work and then, you know, they may have this wonderful kind of catharsis of feeling freedom for the first time in 20 years. But generally, a lot of times people don't. They're like, oh, okay, I question that. No fire, like, there's no firework, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. But what will happen is like days later, they'll encounter something that they know will have triggered them and it doesn't. And they'll have this, this happened to me so many times. Huh, I should, I should really be stressed out right now. I'm normally, huh, that's weird. Good, a little weird that I'm not stressed out, but I'm not stressed out. That's cool. It's, it's, it's that type mm-hmm. of phenomenon. That this is why doing the work, you know, not the easy or the quick, is so valuable because it will actually un, un, you know, unclutter the belief systems that are triggering other stressors in your life. Mm. Yeah. 
There are some great strategies, I think, Sam. Uh, Sam. Mate, I've got two more questions for you, but mm-hmm. before I ask them, I just want to say thank you so much for, for sharing your time with me and, and with my listeners as well. It's been it's been super valuable. And, and also thank you as well for your fascination with, with learning about health and in a kind of a holistic form because there are a lot of specialists out there mm-hmm. which are fantastic and they're absolutely needed. Um, but as you say, they look at one part of health, whereas often if that, that answer doesn't lie in that one part, then we do need that more holistic look. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for disseminating your information that you have about that as well. Uh, the first question is hopefully relatively easy for you. You've talked about a bit of stuff that you've that you've written and things mm-hmm. that you've done. If people are interested in that, where can they go to find it? Uh, DrSamShay.com. D-R-S-A-M-S-H-A-Y.com. That's, a, that's the easiest. That's my blog. Uh, I've got my ebooks there. I've got my whole section on adrenal fatigue, on video game addiction. I've got my three online courses there. I have an online course on uh, fatigue, an online course on um, addiction, and I have an online, a complete online course on how to learn the work of Byron Katie. Awesome. That sounds great. And Sam, a final question for you, mate. Do you have a challenge to leave us with this week? When you say challenge, what do you mean? Could be, could be anything. Okay. Something that we can go out and do over the course of the next week. Or something that we can start to do over the sure, course of the next week. Just be honest with yourself about your 10 pillars. Just be honest with yourself. Take take the 10 pillars. Um, and if you need a reminder or an infographic, like a, I have a nice educational infographic that visually spells it out on my website. But just look at those 10 pillars honestly in your own life. I, I designed it to be a checklist for people to walk through. And see where are my pillars crumbling, and just be honest with yourself on on how you're doing, and and start to learn and gather the resources to help patch up the pillars that you need. That's that's the challenge mm. that I would offer to your listeners. That is a, a very good challenge, I think. Doctor Sam Shea, thank you for getting uncomfortable with me today. <laughs> thank you, my friend. There you have it team, I hope you enjoyed today's chat with Dr. Sam Shea, um, I hope you guys found it valuable. As I said at the start, if you liked what you hear, make sure you click subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you get uh, a new interview episode every Tuesday and a new mini episode every Friday. If you've been listening for a little while, uh, why don't you leave us a rating and review as well? They all help us uh, climb the iTunes charts. Currently, we're sitting about 477,323rd on the charts. Um, I kid, but it's uh, it's very helpful in terms of getting us a little bit more visibility, getting the uncomfortable is okay message out into more people's hearts and minds. and for me being able to pull more awesome guests onto the show as well if we have a bit more visibility. Thank you as always for my brother Jeremy Desmond uh, for the amazing theme music. Thank you for the guys that are supporting the show on Patreon. Um, If you want to support the show financially, you can head over to patreon.com slash uncomfortable is okay to help out there. But most of all, thank you guys for getting uncomfortable with Sam and I today. Mm